0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. And it is a long war indeed to continue with our coverage of Israel's war with Hamas and the wider conflict with Iranian-backed militias. Today, we have our friend and colleague, Benham ben He's a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. And of course, Joe Truesman, he's a research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal. Proud to call both Benham and Joe my friends, as well as colleagues. Benham, Joe, welcome to Generation Jihad. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Hey, Bill. All right, let's get into it. Hopefully everyone had a great Thanksgiving weekend. God, it's hard to tune out these things. I tried to take a break, but there's just so much going on. Joe, let's get us caught up. There is a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas at the moment for a hostage exchange. Tell us what's happening. Is there any fighting going on between Israel Defense Forces and Hamas? Have we noticed any fighting with Hezbollah and what's been going on in the West Bank as well?
1: Right. Um, so, yes, just like you were saying, there's a ceasefire right now. And uh, just uh, looking at the news just a little while ago, it appears that it has been extended for two more days. Um, and in turn, uh, Hamas is going to release more hostages uh, that they abducted from southern Israel on October 7th. Um, and which is, you know, obviously good news for Israel. And at the same time, it's actually good news for Hamas because they can... During this time, they can regroup, right? And uh, and also they're they're getting back prisoners, right? Israeli yeah, prisoners of course, yes. by Israel who were actual terrorists. <laughs> yeah, um, it's really important to note. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, uh Yeah, they're Israel's releasing not just releasing just you know people innocent people releasing terrorists for you know babies and and women and and, and people that have and uh, elderly people. So uh, these hostages, right? So um you know it's a sad situation but this is how things work unfortunately within these circumstances so um and but anyway so as far as fighting is going on um there hasn't been really fighting there hasn't i mean there's been some unverified scattered reports of 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 a little bit of fighting in gaza but i i don't think it's anything significant um there hasn't been any airstrikes or anything like that by the Israelis, so that's good so it seems like the ceasefire is holding right now. It'll be extended two days. Um, but other areas, other fronts, like uh, in the north uh, with Hezbollah, there have been, at the very beginning, when, when the ceasefire started, there was some activity, but it it ceased. And so far, it's been calm, so, which is good. Uh, other areas, and we'll definitely talk more about this after, but uh, like uh, southern Israel, for example, there have been uh, at least in the beginning, uh, when the ceasefire started, there have been um, reports of, of uh, let's say, either drones or, I think it actually was the Israelis said it was a cruise missile that was fired at a lot. So um, the Houthis continue, at least, continued at, at least at that point, to fire on Israel. So and I think they're going to c- continue their activities, not as much as when uh, the the fighting was. Uh, uh when there was uh fighting between Israel and and, and Hamas but uh, uh I think they're they're going to still continue operations and we can we'll definitely talk more about that later um so yeah that's really it uh, and oh as far as the West Bank is concerned West Bank is still the West Bank it hasn't there, there's no change there okay there there's still violence there there's Israeli operations against uh terrorist groups and uh in the, especially in the northern Gaza strip and Janine, Nablus those areas that hasn't stopped okay so I would not connect the West Bank to what's happening in Gaza I think the Israelis see these see these two areas as as as, as uh, that are as being disconnected basically right so um I think this is uh, important to note so uh but yeah so that's basically what's been happening uh up till now
0: and one quick follow-up question Joe do does Hamas consider these to be separate theaters
1: no No, no, no. They definitely want to connect them. I mean, they make it, they say it in statements all the time, not only Hamas, but all the Palestinian armed organizations, they, they, they see it as a, as one entity, basically the West bank and Gaza. Okay. So, um, they try to connect it all the time, but, um, with, like I said, with their statements or, um, with kinetic action and, you know, a lot of times, uh, things that happen in what the West bank, uh, acts of terrorism um, are orchestrated from gaza so uh that's, that's important to know and not only gaza sometimes from turkey too but uh that's definitely a, a whole different subject so uh but yeah they definitely at least hamas and other Palestinian armed organizations consider the west bank and gaza to be uh unified and yet
0: hamas isn't considering israeli raids in and clashes in the west bank to be a violation of the ceasefire is that
1: correct yeah i don't think it was even a from what i've read I, I don't think it was even a part of the the deal right so the ceasefire agreement so yeah and, and i don't think the israelis would stop anyway they would never agree to something like that uh, so i'd be very surprised at least if they did so but no i don't they don't see any at least for now uh, any operations in the military operations in the west bank has a, like a ceasefire violation so I think it's uh, the Israelis have successfully separated Gaza and the West Bank as far as the ceasefire is concerned.
0: All right, so let's. We're going to take a look at the bigger picture, particularly the Iranian-backed militias. There's a lot that's happened, uh, Benham, since you've been on, and I'll start. We're going to take this in chronological order, even though the the most recent event, the um, uh, apparently a ballistic missile attack on a U.S. destroyer operating in, I believe, it was the Gulf of Aden. Um, we'll we'll cover that last, even though to me it is the most interesting. We'll we'll just take this take this in order. So we've had we've had a, an attack attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq, which the U.S. responded to. That was last week. Then um, the Houthis issued a threat last week to target shipping. Um, and then there was a hijacking. Then we had an Iranian drone attack on an, uh, Israeli ship. Um, that was over the weekend. And then the high, uh, hijacking of it, another ship, which it's questionable as to who conducted the hijacking and then immediately responded by a ball- ballistic mass, bl- ballistic missile attack on a U.S. warship. Um, let's start with the attack on the U.S., the attacks on the U.S. bases in Iraq and the U.S. response, Benham. Break that down for us and tell us what this all means.
2: Sure. Well, listen, this is a lot more of the same, but turning up the volume and turning up the pressure on a lot more of the same. Uh, in 2019, twice, there were two batches of stories, one in the late uh, summer, early fall, and one around midwinter period, talking about Iran moving short-range ballistic missiles uh, into northwestern and western Iraq. There were a couple figures given. There were a couple estimates as to the type of munitions given, but short-range ballistic missiles uh, were kind of used as a offhand, uh, you know, catch-all for what Iran was moving there. Why this is important is because this wasn't, you know, a transfer to the state in Iraq. Uh, this was basically proliferation to Iran's robust proxy network in that country, putting some of these weapons and capabilities in storage. We have not seen those weapons come online until november 20 or november 21st 2023 so on november 20 or 21st for the first time ever iran backed shia militias in iraq fired their first ever ballistic missile uh, at u.s positions i believe it was at an al-assad and one other location uh in iraq uh, this is a game changer this is a lot more, even though it may look like a lot more uh, of the same meaning more indirect fire attacks on u.s positions. It's a game changer or uh, an escalation, you could say, because of the weapon. Some of the most uh, fast-flying weapons uh, in in Iran's arsenal. And uh, the fact that the Iraqi militias had not fired ballistic missiles at uh, American or other coalition targets until just recently, until a few days before Thanksgiving this year, Uh, tells you a little bit about Iran's intentions for those weapons and the long game that those militias have been able to play and the fact that they still have escalation rungs on the ladder. Uh, The good news is, uh, in response uh, to the one, which the U.S. later identified as a close-range ballistic missile for technical folks that is uh, under 300 kilometers, um, this basically means that... uh, the close-range ballistic missile uh, was likely a variant of a single-stage, uh, solid-fueled ballistic missile that exists in Iran's arsenal. Uh, a few uh, weeks before this uh, reported attack, uh, there were on uh, Iraqi social media networks uh, again uh, touting that this weapon was in the hands of the Iranian uh, of these of the Iraqi resistance. Uh, there, claiming that they had a missile called the Al-Aqsa One. And the Al-Aqsa-1, the pictures of it look like a copy of that single-stage, solid-fuel, uh, close-range ballistic missile called the Fath, the F-A-T-H, which sometimes, when it was revealed in, in the 2020-2021 period, uh, looked like a much shorter, smaller, single-stage, solid-fuel, short-range ballistic missile called the Fateh-110. And it's Iran's entire family of the Fateh-110 ballistic missile. Uh, that has been used in these various Iranian overt uh, missile operations against ISIS and against U.S. positions and against Kurdish dissidents uh, in northern Iraq. Uh, variants of those include the Fatih 313 and the Zulfagar, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but this, this weapon that the Iraqis fired, again, is most likely a, a carbon copy of the FAT, or the BM-120, close-range ballistic missile. Very closely related to the Fateh One Ten ballistic missile, and this is among the most precise of the uh, Iranian ballistic missiles in their closer and and short range arsenal. And pre- and precision there is defined as you know uh, the distance that they would say uh, you know whether that's ten meters or fifteen meters or five meters. Uh, more than half of the strikes falling within ten meters, five meters, or fifteen meters of a given target. All of this is to say that. It's a capability that Iran transferred to its proxies, was able to keep in reserve, and was able to give the green light allegedly for, for this firing. Fortunately, the U.S. did respond, and the U.S. responded in two locations uh, on, the, on the 21st using an AC 130 gunship, which fortunately did happen to be on patrol in the area. And the U.S. did return fire in Iraq, which is a little bit of a historic anomaly for the Biden administration, which has been choosing to withhold this fire in Iraq, even though it's getting attacked in Iraq and has been recently choosing to respond in Syria only. So all of this uh, shows that it's cognizant of how the Iranians have escalated. It was willing to say that it was a ballistic missile. Um, But again, these pinprick strikes, even if it does lead to several militia deaths, are not going to be enough to deplete the militias of the stores of these weapons or erode their resolve to continue uh, firing them at at U.S. positions. And indeed, when we returned fire on November 21st, The militias allegedly struck back three or four times on Thanksgiving between the 23rd and 24th. That leaves the number of uh, Iran-backed militia attacks against us in Iraq and Syria in the upwards of 70 plus since October 17th.
0: Benham, do we have any indication of where the missile was fired from within Iraq?
2: Uh, My, uh, I haven't seen confirmation on social media. Uh, I certainly haven't seen good reporting of it. You know, my assessment, uh, you know, you have like a couple of hot spots. if it's somewhere near the storage facility, uh, then it would be, you know, yeah, just outside on bar, uh, or on bar, just outside on bar. Uh, the problem with this is that when it was showcased on social media uh, in early November, it was rail launch. So this is something you could mount and move and have a tell a transporter, retro launcher kind of fire and forget.
1: Ben, um, I I do have a question, actually. I'm thinking about, you're talking about, you know, weapon systems and close-range ballistic missiles. When I think of what Iraqi militias have, like the Houthis as well, and other actors in the region, I wonder if Hezbollah likely has the same arsenal or even better, you know? I I start thinking about, well, I wonder who Iran supplies the most or who Iran gives the better weapons to, I guess you could say. Would it be Hezbollah would it be the Iraqi militias, or maybe the, the they use the Houthis as a you know like kind of like a testing ground of sorts? I mean, I'm just curious what you think about that uh, within like I guess the axis of resistance when it comes to Iran Iran transferring the technology and the weapons. Who, who do you think they, they they I guess give priority to when it comes to these let's say short range ballistic missiles or, or, or long range drones or, or or whatever else? What do you think? You know, this is this is
2: clearly a case of the patron knowing the needs of the proxy and imposing its own view of what each battlefield that the proxy is in will need to either win or to bait and bleed the adversary or sufficiently deter the adversary. So it's like a cocktail. They shake it up. They pour it out into a different theater. It looks different in different areas uh, for a very long time. Uh, It was Lebanese Hezbollah with some of the precision-guided munitions. Uh, As early as 2012 to 2014, you had a hardline Iranian press saying that the Fateh 110, this single-stage, short-range precision-strike ballistic missile, uh, which could be rail launched, um, and could be launched within you know moments within moments notice because it's a solid fuel system and has a range of 250 to 300 kilometers and a circular error probable of about 10 meters, so which is among the more accurate of Iran's ballistic missiles. For a while, it was touted that the axis of resistance, the Levant, whether one would read that as Lebanese Hezbollah or Lebanese Hezbollah and the Assad regime. Would be having these weapons. And if I'm not mistaken, in 2012, the Assad regime did use uh, a variant of the 110 against a Syrian rebel positions. So for a while, it was assumed that what was in the Levant was the most strategic. With the onset of the Yemen war uh, and all of the indirect fire attacks on Saudi and coalition forces from the Houthis, uh, including on civilian targets we saw ranges in the hands of an Iranian proxy that we never saw before. And indeed today, uh, the Houthis are the only ones that have medium-range ballistic missiles. They used to be the only ones with also land-attack cruise missiles. Uh, But just recently, the same social media networks that advertised the Al-Aqsa-1, that close-range ballistic missile in the hands of the Iraqis, also showed a land-attack cruise missile on a launcher as well it was not fired there is still no evidence of the Iraqis using cruise missile against the americans or against the israelis or against the coalition but it was bragged as a, as a as a as a missile being in their capabilities and then of course there's the you know uh shia militia and houthi variants of the shahid drone of the shahid 136 which Earlier this year, even Iranian reports finally came out with their estimation of the range of the Shahid 136, which puts out many of our open source estimates of the range of the Shahid 136 to shame. The Iranians say it has 2,500 kilometer range, uh, which means that you could fire the Wa'id, which is the Houthi variant of the Shahid 136 from Yemen at Eilat and easily make that distance. And indeed... Uh, I do believe that is what is being fired and intercepted from the Houthis uh, towards Israel uh, as late as last week. Uh, so a different capability in the hand of a different militia, given the different needs of each battlefield. Um, and the, the trend line I would tell you for all of these is that a capability that is seen in Iran is not going to remain in Iran. The old line with the proxies was that it was quantity has a quality of its own now, Iran in the past few years has been looking to actually build on the quality side, and that's where you're seeing different light profiles. You're seeing land attack cruise missiles, closer range missiles, and indeed need suicide drones plus precision plus these shorter range, close range precision strike systems. So they're indeed adding to the quality in ways that include more than just more quantity. Um, and there are some places that you mentioned, like Yemen, which are a testing ground. You know, we've seen that really be the only theater. For ballistic missiles to come from the proxy to the patron, uh, the Houthis unveiled a missile in a September 22 parade um, that ultimately re-entered the Iranian arsenal uh, later that year as the, as the resvan as, as a medium range nuclear capable liquid propellant ballistic missile. Uh, so sometimes, indeed, there are uh, there are ways that the the Houthis will use uh, systems that lead the Iranians to saying, "Okay, this works," or "This is worth." scaling up, or this is worth mass producing. Um, And unfortunately, uh, Iran has a a very robust social science experiment going on with how to fight, uh, you know, urban or asymmetric wars using these weapons across the whole Middle East, which we're seeing today.
0: That's an interesting point you bring up, uh, you know, as far as the needs for the militia, like it makes more sense that the Houthis would have Ballistic or cruise missiles able to target shipping since they have far, far better access to the sea than say Iraqi militias may. That doesn't mean Iraqi militias couldn't use them. But one quick question before we are going to turn to the Houthis next. A lot of interesting developments on that front over the last week plus, but any indication as to which militia fired these, um, close range ballistic missiles at the, at the Ain al-Assad airbase?
2: Uh, the the ones that allegedly took responsibility is that larger umbrella front that Islamic resistance of Iraq and in terms of fatalities it was Kataib Hezbollah which took fatalities. Um, so this is this is really one of the the revolving shell game of the AKA. I mean, it, it probably was one of the big four: Kataib Hezbollah, uh, Asayib Al haq Kataib Sayed Shuada, or Harakat Hezbollah Nujaba. Uh, there was an allegation. I think it's been you know clearly disproven, but on foreign language social media. Uh, that when the U.S. did return fire uh, that it returned fire against Harakat Hezbollah Ujaba. And For a while there were concerns about, or there were questions as to where is Akram al-Kabi, was he killed in one of these strikes.
0: If only we were that lucky. <laughs> yeah, I remember tracking that guy back in, in, in when the U.S. was trying to get him in 2007 um, in in Baghdad. Joe, I, and then we'll turn to the hoot, I know I promised, but you had uh, posted an infographic, I believe it was released by Hezbollah Brigades where they were claiming they launched what 75 attacks against US forces?
1: Yeah. In Iraq and Syria? Right, yeah. So yeah, right. it's
0: it's is that is that attributed? Was Hezbollah claiming those attacks for themselves, or were they saying the Islamic resistance in Iraq um is responsible for that many attacks?
1: Yeah, it was more the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Uh, you know, in hindsight, I I think I could have been uh put a little bit more detail into it. But the interesting part about it, I mean. The, the reason why I even posted is because um, obviously we know about the attacks and against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria, but they also claimed three attacks against quote occupied territories, which is Israel, right? So uh, that was very interesting. But I don't know. I mean, it could have been there was a drone attack in a lot uh, a few weeks into the war. It wasn't attributed to the Houthis. It was very. It was interesting because. The Israelis, they were re- they're really vague about it. They they said... They, yeah, isn't that the one that they, like, yeah. skirted?
0: They said if they thought it came through Jordan. It was kind of like... Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, us talking Jordan about this one, going, I'm where the hell did this come about? from?
2: Because the Jordanians I haven't seen confirm, but the Israelis, at least I saw I-24 confirm that Jordan intercepted something, but it must have come from the West, not from the South, in my view. I just don't know what the munition was. No one has said what it was, let alone who fired it.
0: Right. Yeah I th- this really does give a lot of credence to to that claim Joe. That's why that caught that was one of the most actually uh, uh, look aside from the you know the hijacking and the the ballistic that was really an interesting piece of information you posted on Twitter that that really caught my eye that I wish I could have delved in a little deeper you know into over the weekend but that yeah that that was fascinating.
1: Yeah no, and of course uh you know I wish in hindsight as well I wish I would have uh looked into a little bit further or explained it uh, more in a little bit more detail, but yeah, I thought it was interesting, right? Especially after that, what, what the Israelis said, they were, um, they were very vague about who they attacked. I mean, they didn't even name. They just said it, it was really strange. I mean, I've uh, you know, the, uh, the work that I do, all the statements that I read from, especially from the IDF uh, generally they'll say, you know, okay, we attacked, you know, so-and-so, right. They, they usually name an organization or a person or whatever, but this time they purposely were, I feel, they purposely just didn't name it. They said an organization, I believe they called it. So um, I just figured it was maybe the IRGC or someone, obviously some uh, an entity related to the IRGC, right, or Iran. So, but yeah, it didn't say it. So it may have been the, um, the Iranian-backed militias. Uh, and what they posted may have been accurate, actually, which is pretty interesting.
0: You know, I get the sense that the, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but the Israelis really don't seem to want to engage with the, you know, recognize the threat posed by the, is the Iraqi and the Shia militias, um, the Iranian backed versions. Like it's almost like they have enough on their hands with Hezbollah, with the West Bank, with the Houthis, which that one's really tough to disguise, right? The Houthis are very um open about this and then and, and obviously what's going on in Gaza is that a a fair assumption or am i am i miss is my thoughts misplaced on that?
1: oh, yeah, no, like i've been saying they're managing the fronts. that's what they're doing. They're on the defensive on all the other fronts, except for the West Bank. uh that's how I see it right now and and that's what these uh, the Israeli military officials have said in their in statements and in press conferences I've been in they've been saying it they you know well on the defensive and Um, They want to make sure that they're they're letting people know that um, they're just focused on Gaza right now. So I think that will continue because I I do expect after this ceasefire these next few days uh, after it's um, that eventually the Israelis will return to attacking their offensive. Okay, they want to destroy Hamas. That's their goal. And I don't see that changing right now. So and I think they will continue on the defensive on other fronts except for the West Bank. Here's where my question. Yeah, as we discuss, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Ahead, on, I just yeah. this
2: comes to mind. Here's where the question of when does one front move from offensive to defensive come in, which is not not Hezbollah, which is it seems like both sides have a graduated escalation there: more drone, more anti-tank, more rocket. Israel responds, and then there's kind of a rinse repeat. But the volume, the the trend line for the volume is going up, but so far it hasn't, you know, broke the bank. My concern is if one of these Houthi things lands in lot, or if there is some kind of Syrian-Iraqi, you know, multidirectional fire, uh, and, you know, there is there is contact made, uh, at, at, would that require a change in the Israeli position? Like, you know, there's an open question in the Iran watcher community right now, uh, Israel's not going to go after the head of the snake at the moment, but will it go towards the middle of the snake, like the body? And the whole point of Iran bringing the Houthis online, uh, even though it knows it's not winning, and indeed, even though it knows most of the stuff is getting intercepted, is that it's a distraction of manpower, and it's a signal of what could potentially come. They're they're signaling, hey, we can scale up the multi-front war, so you need to scale down the Gaza war. But does that mean uh, that if one of these things ever lands, Israel will have to move from offensive or defensive I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I'm wondering what is it going to take uh, for a change on one of these non-bordering footings of the Syria, of the Iraq and of the, the Houthi front?
0: Yeah, and, and if if the Israelis openly admit this was an attack by an Iraqi militia, I mean, the Israelis generally are going to respond. They don't like to let attacks go at least at least the, on an equal footing, right? The Israelis want to show they're going to respond. And I think this is a front they don't want to open right now. So letting a, letting a stray attack or two pass without identifying who it could be because of with all the confusion going on between the Houthis and Hezbollah and the West Bank and Gaza, they, could, they might be willing. And again, we're all thinking out loud, loud here. We don't have any inside information. That's my read on that situation They'll will turn to this problem when they have to, but it's not one that they feel they need to right now or even
1: want to right now. I think it's important to note um, right now that the reason, I think part of the reason why these Israelis aren't, um, aren't attacking is that, the, of course, it's the whole uh, the, the attack at the other fronts, let's say, or the Iraqis, or at least that we know of, like, the Iraqi militias or the, the Houthis. Is that um, everyone's so on edge about a regional war breaking out, right? And I think they're under, they're, they're, it would be reasonable to believe that the Israelis are under pressure from allies to not, point, you know, Absolutely. to not attack. I mean, that's, that's what everybody's been scared, I mean, concerned about the last what, 50 days now. So um, I think that's why, because in, in past, con, or in past, I guess, attacks, let's say if it comes from Syria or somewhere else, Um, especially if it's linked to Iranian backed militias, Israel will react strongly. That's how they work, but they have it now. And I think it's for the reasons that I just explained.
0: Yeah. I I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that, that really, you, you combine the reluctance to open a new front, um, it's opening a whole can of worms too. I know we talked about this. Like I, you know, I use the, what? The Iranian, I still think people don't understand what the Iranians have done in Iraq. They've made Hezbollah on steroids. And these groups are still developing. They're still gaining weapon systems and experience, but they're battle hardened by two decades of war. Look, look at the, look at what the Iranians did in a population of 4 million, creating a a threat to Israel with Hezbollah. Now take that to Iraq with a population, what, 36 to 38 million, 60% Shia. You look at the recruiting base. You just have Hezbollah times ten, at least with capabilities. Now it's not a direct border with Israel, but the way things are in Syria, um, the, and with the land bridge that exists from Iraq to Syria to Lebanon, this can be a very, very significant problem for the Israelis. And so, I do think it's you know, I think people know me by now. I'm a believer in um, you know responding in a way that makes people con- you know consider not. Um, uh, not fighting back but this might be one that israel might not want to bite this one off and um this problem you know is is might be bigger than uh, than they could handle right now uh, so any thoughts on that Benham?
2: no i just the joe mentioned something about political restraint by the u.s potentially or u.s allies on israel Um, for fear of a wider regional war. But then we also have to understand what is the Iranian strategy here. The the selective turning up the volume of these non-bordering domains as well as the bordering ones against Israel uh, is to show the connective tissue between all of them and Gaza, which is, you know, the best case scenario is the U.S. and Israel managed to absorb or deter or threaten uh, that if Iran or the proxies in any of those jurisdictions enters a conflict, that they would pay, like you mentioned, an outsized price. Uh, response to that is to say, the longer the conflict in Gaza goes on, the more you, you risk us voluntarily turning up uh, the the dial here. So it is going to be—it's literally a contest of will, uh, as I see it—and uh, it'll it'll be even though the proxies have not waited while. Well, uh, you know Hamas is allegedly in this ceasefire pattern um it, once that drops i i expect this stuff to to significantly pick up which will again put israel on the defensive of how much do you absorb how much do you intercept, and at what point do you respond
0: yeah the the iranians are certainly dictating the and the militia their their sponsored militias uh, certainly are dictating the pace of this. That that does seem clear. Let's take a look at the the Houthis now. We um, had a lot of interesting developments. So on the 14th, they issued a a poster, a graphic, an Israeli ship. Obviously, it's computer generated. That's on fire, and they they issued the threat: "We will sink your ships." On the 16th, an international maritime coalition issues a warning for all ships moving through the um Red Sea and the Babo Mandeb Strait. And I argued they should have probably included the Gulf of Aden on that as well. Um for all ships moving through there to to basically to stay away from the Yemeni coast, to, to move quickly through there and not stop. And um to let the international coalition know who's moving through there. So three days later on the 19th, the galaxy leader, a cargo ship, was hijacked. Um, by the the Houthis, um, they shoot a video on this as well. It's really interesting. I recommend you, if you go out and you could at the Long War Journal we have an article up there with the, the um, uh, with the video embedded in there. It's about a two minute long video, and you see them with a landing on the upper deck of the ship with a helicopter and a team of about eight to ten Houthi fighters fan out and look pretty good. Doing it. I mean, the, you know, again, they're not U.S. Navy SEALs. They're not U.S. Delta Force. But they certainly were able to hijack the ship. They brought it into port. And so it's begun. And then by November 25th, you had an Iranian drone attack on an Israeli ship in the Indian Sea. Tell us more about that. So there's a lot of attention paid to the galaxy leader hijacking. But Benham, um, talk to us. You know, the 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 Iranian drone attack on an Israeli ship in the um in the Indian Ocean, this really didn't get a lot of coverage, a lot of discussion. What happened here um, has the uh, have the Israelis responded to this in any way? Uh, to the best of my
2: knowledge, the Israelis have not responded. But this is this is actually something that far predates the October seven terror attack by Hamas and the ensuing Israeli military operation here. This is part of what you might call that larger Israeli-Iranian shadow war. Uh, because it's worth noting that at the pace of one a year since the summer of 2021, so three times so far, summer 2021, November 2022, and November 2023, Iran has used a one-way Delta Wing attack drone, which we now know to be the Shahid 136. That's the same drone the Iranians have given the Russians for use against Ukraine and are now also helping them domestically produce there uh, under the name of the Geron 2. The Iranians use this to attack cargo ships that ultimately were owned or controlled by the Ofer family uh, in Israel. Um, there's there's two brothers. They they have two different kind of shipping conglomerates. One tied to London. One tied to Singapore. Uh, the Iranians have been able to kind of search out these registries, kind of do their for lack of a better word due diligence as to who ultimately owns or controls or is the beneficiary of some of these uh, you know uh, commercial vessels that are usually la- flagged under Liberia, or, or in this most recent case, it was a Maltese flag vessel, uh, and strike at those. Uh, and in the first instance, in 2021, they killed two people. In every instance, since then, there has been an impact of the drone, but fortunately, no fatalities and no major uh, you know, uh, injuries uh, to the ship. Again, the Iranians have said that the max warhead weight of the 200-kilogram one- Shad 136 is about Uh, 50 kilograms max. So uh, do with that what you will with the speed uh, of of a drone like the 136. But again, this is part of the larger Israeli-Iranian shadow war. And part of this other thing, which is Iran's willingness to engage in cross-domain escalation. They'll absorb an assassination attack and respond with a drone attack. They'll absorb a cyber attack and respond with a terror attack. They'll absorb a drone attack and respond with a ballistic missile attack. Often never against the jurisdiction that launched it, but almost always against an asset or an interest they perceive to believe to be tied to Israel, or they believe Israel values. You saw this with the March 2022 attack on the home of a Kurdish Iraqi magnate uh in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan that the Iranians alleged was at some point a Mossad safe house. It could be uh, you know, showing off the save face. Uh, but I actually am I'm more inclined to believe that in general, these are moves that the Iranians are willing to engage in, plus terrorism, plus ring of fire from its proxy network, that they believe actually gives them a leg up against a conventionally superior adversary, like the Israelis who thus far have not engaged in an overt Direct attack against the Iranian mainland. There has been cyber, there has been sabotage, there has been assassination. But the Iranians believe this cocktail of cross domain escalation is not only enough to deter the Israelis from such an overt, direct, kinetic attack on those key regime sites like military and nuclear, but also is a tool to adjudicate the day to day conflict of their war and their regional pushback uh, against Israel. So This fits into the larger pattern. And indeed, if you go into 2021, before that first ever Shahid 136 attack on um, uh, that vessel, which I believe was the Mercer Street, um, which again tied to the Ofer family, uh, there were four separate instances of Iran-backed attacks against commercial targets that were all maritime that, again, Iran believed were some kind of an Israeli asset or some kind of an Israeli interest. So this is part of a larger established pattern of graduated escalation and cross-domain escalation that is what has allowed a regime that on paper, as weak as the Islamic Republic is, to continue to live, to fight another day, to continue to fight these conflicts on a day-to-day fashion against armies like the IDF and the U.S. Army.
0: Yeah, it really is interesting to watch how Iranian strategy plays out. It's, you know, as you know, they may be conventionally inferior, yet I think the Iranians really excel at the asymmetrical warfare. Joe, you you track what's going on inside of Israel, the conversations. Has this even hit the radar? I mean, with all the with the with the hostage exchange and the ceasefire. Is there even any acknowledgement that an an Israeli um, cargo ship was attacked by the by the Iranians and there has been no response?
1: Yeah, I mean, there has been. But with the war going on, it's been just kind of like we've talked about before. It's been overshadowed. Right. So um, I think people understand that Israel's in a multi front war. So it's, again, managing these fronts. Right. So it got to be concentrated on Gaza. Uh, but I do want to bring up two two things, and uh, one's actually a question for Benham. Uh, but the first one, uh, regarding the and this is of course regarding the Houthis. Uh, the, right at the beginning of the ceasefire, there was an attack, or I can't remember if it was the attack on a lot, or um, or maybe it was against like one of the maritime vessels. Anyway the houthis said that they would um that it was due to they made a statement they published a statement claiming uh acknowledging they were responsible for the attack and then they said it was interestingly they said as the, as they have in the past and as they have during the the, the con- when the conflict started on, on october 7th they said that they were doing it before and i'm paraphrasing here because for the people for what was happening in gaza but they also added what was happening in the west bank uh the, the israeli operations in the west bank that's why they were doing it And that's the first time they were doing it and the way i saw it was that the houthis were just leaving the door open that they that they will resume that they were saying or they were hinting that um that they will res, uh even though there's a ceasefire between israel and gaza uh that uh they will they can continue attacks right uh during uh during the ceasefire because uh, any ob- uh, Israeli observer, or, or rather uh, observer of this type, this conflict, knows that um, Israel was going to continue its operations uh, unhindered in the West Bank against Palestinian terrorist organizations. So, um, so there was a hint there that the Houthis would continue attacks. I thought it was going to be continue. It was going to be more the drones, the the the, uh, the ballistic missiles, and whatnot. But it seems that it's more the maritime thing, right? And this is what brings me to my question. In this per benham. Do you think the way uh, what the the Houthis are doing right now uh, with regarding the maritime vessels isn't it? Don't you see this more of like, as like a low hanging fruit for them? Like looking up who owns a, a a a commercial vessel, and if he happens to be Israeli, and if it happens to be passing by, you know, the coast, uh, that they'll attack it, right? Don't you see this as, as more of like a again low hanging fruit for them? I mean, because they can't do m- anything else really compared other than of course you know launching drones and these ballistic missiles but but yeah well, I was just curious of, of your thoughts here because it just seems like it's kind of like a, a almost an easy target for them but please uh, if you can expand on that
2: well well sure I certainly think it is easy but that's that's the nature of the game with graduated escalation I just but I just want to remind folks though I'm pretty sure it, it was insinuated in the press and all the press that said that this was a Shahad 136 against this uh, you know, vessel that was Maltese flag, but ultimately tied to an Israeli businessman against the Ofer family. Uh, the the insinuation was that it was launched from Iran, uh, and I and I would am inclined to believe it because Iran can easily manage escalation dynamics with a weapon like a drone, whereas with a weapon like a ballistic missile, and that'll get into something that I believe you know uh, Bill is going to ask us a bit later. Uh, which is the Houthi ballistic missile uh, attempted attack on uh, US vessels, uh, that almost is going to have to necessitate a response. It's hard to manage a tool, manage an an escalatory spiral uh, using ballistic missiles, given the speed at which they fly, given the payloads that they have, versus drones, which are low and slow. And Iran has long tried to use drone warfare against Israel, against America, as something to make you say, ah, it's more worth, Absorbing that strike, then responding to that strike to make the more responsible party weigh the costs and benefits. Uh, but indeed, that's that's the way it goes with graduated escalation. To even though they are going for something that may appear to look like low hanging fruit, the fact that they strike it with something which is I don't want to say deniable, but not seen as lethal as some of these most damning weapons in their arsenal. That is also designed to play into the adversary's response calculus to say uh, I may need to respond for deterrence purposes, but it's politically more advantageous for me and perhaps even financially more advantageous uh, for me to absorb rather than to match or escalate. And I think that that gets into the Iranian willingness to play the shadow war uh, with so many in the region. Um, but what we're seeing is very much a continuation of that. Shadow war. Uh, some places that can afford to be more like the Houthis in Yemen, they're turning on so much more of their fire overtly. And Iran is, again, just like this chef uh, in a very big kitchen, like a restaurant-grade kitchen, moving different pans, which have different levels of of, of uh, sauces, boiling and cooking uh, on uh, different burners that are operating at different uh, heat levels.
0: All right, Benham, that's a great segue for the final topic here. Yesterday's attempt at hijacking and the Houthis firing ballistic. So I'll I'll quickly lay that out and then tell us what you think uh, happened here, Venom. Or really, t- I'm I'm really surprised. This event, you know, really uh, really caught my eye late last evening once I I heard that anti what we believe to be anti ship ballistic missiles were fired at a U.S. warship in, in the Gulf of Aden. So yesterday, um the USS Mason, which is an Arleigh Burke class uh, destroyer. Um, was patrolling in the Gulf of Aden uh, along with a Japanese warship. They responded to a, a hijacking of the uh, MV Central Park. It's a Liberian flag tanker. Um, the um, The crew they barricaded themselves um, after the ship was boarded. the The Mason and the Japanese warship closed in. They, um, you know, they told the the pirates to surrender. They got off the ship and they were captured. It now looks to be that, um, you know, we all assumed, I think, at the beginning or the, the, the logical assumption would have been that there was the Houthis. U.S. officials are now saying they believe they were Somalis. But shortly after this, two um ballistic missiles were fired at the Mason the J- at Japanese warship. And they landed about 10 miles is what the U.S. military, what U.S. Central Command stated in their press release. Um, I got to admit, I was really shocked. I didn't realize the uh, Houthis had this capability. Um, and Benham, you uh, correctly informed me last evening that the uh, yes, they indeed paraded these missiles. Um, I believe it was last September, September of two thousand and twenty-two. That would be so the previous September. You know, you had noted, Benham, that this is like that gradual escalation by the by the Iranians, because let's face it, the Houthis don't fire. uh, I don't in my estimation, an asset like that without some type of approval and possibly technical support from the Iranians. So uh, what are the implications of this, Benham? And uh, tell us a little bit more about the the capacity for the to use such a technology.
2: Well, to, to zoom out and look at their patron, uh, the Iranians have several classes of, of anti-ship systems. Some of their oldest are anti-ship crews that they got from the Chinese uh, in the Iran-Iraq War and the later end of that in 1990s, several other classes uh, that they got reverse engineered and they brought into their arsenal. They have, the, I believe, the C-704, but most importantly, the C-801 or the C-802. And the Houthis who took over former President Saleh's arsenal, they had the C-802 anti-ship, C-801 anti-ship cruise missile. And I believe they had the C-802 courtesy of Iran as well. I believe Lebanese Hezbollah uh, had fired a C-802 in 2006 at the INS-Henit during that war. And that was courtesy of Iran. And and I believe in 2016, the Mason, which was again featured here uh, alongside the coast of Yemen, was subject to anti-ship cruise missile fire. But this is pretty significant because this is anti-ship ballistic missile fire. So again, a different trajectory, a much greater speed, a different flight profile. Um, Iran has been looking to increase the range of its anti-ship ballistic missiles upwards of 1,000 kilometers. This is basically for the Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz to continue to force the U.S. out of the Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz. This is more, again, Iran kind of copy-pasting some of Russia and China's A2AD anti-access area denial. Uh, you know, capabilities and tactics, and basically force the adversary to operate from a greater distance, impeding some of the uh air power operations that some that they may need to undertake against uh Iranian territory, uh, prospectively in the future. So, this is this is Iran's goal with the anti ship. Uh, and you've seen them actually have a pretty robust uh terrorist apparatus, more like the IRGC Navy apparatus that they're able to use to engage in swarm attacks as well, to also push people out and to use size, given the geography of the region, uh, to turn the size of an adversary's vessel or the size of an adversary's fleet into a disadvantage uh, and make them targets for the picking off using these anti-ship crews and these anti-ship ballistic systems. The proliferation of it to a place like the Red Sea and the and the, the Bab el mendeb and the Gulf of Aden is to be able to replicate those same tactics that Iran is thinking it is able to engage in successfully in the Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz to another critical maritime choke point there. Uh, I'm even glad you mentioned that there was a Japanese vessel involved, because uh, to to Joe's question about the Iranians doing their due diligence and looking up who owns some of these ships, uh, again, and going back to 2019, this is where history is relevant. Uh, Then former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's historic trip to Tehran in the summer of 2019, uh, he had two Meetings for two days, and on the morning of his second set of meetings, where he met with Iran's supreme leader, when that too was a historic first meeting, a Japanese oil tanker was targeted in one of these asymmetric mining operations uh, near the Strait of Hormuz. So the Iranians do have a habit of trying to find out who benefits or who owns the ship, or where is the ship going, or who is the the commodity on the ship going to uh, when they attack it. And that also means that they're willing to replicate some of those. Uh, targeting tactics from the patron to the proxy in terms of this exact capability uh it means that the international maritime uh, security construct a lot of the anti kind of arms trafficking and counter piracy constructs that exist for those three bodies of water that we just discussed are gonna have to again uh be much more cautious uh when it comes to patrolling those areas and uh, to me it's an open question if the houthis miss don't have experience using some of these anti-ship missiles uh, or don't know how to, you know, marry up the electro optic on some of the Iranian variants of anti-ship ballistic missiles they have with some of their own targeting equipment. Um, but long story short, uh, I think this is a threat that's about to be repeated. Uh, it's more a question of when, not if, it's about to be repeated Um, and, and that means the ships, uh, particularly the, the Aegis enabled, uh, ballistic missile destroyers, uh, that operate in this area are also going to have to become, uh, more active.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, you know, another hidden cost involved in this is the insurance rates have to be skyrocketing, um, for ships moving in this area given what the Houthis have done just in the past week. even if they don't do a single thing from here on out, that threat is just hanging of shipping being either destroyed or hijacked or, you know, so this really has to be something, you know, it's just a, it's a form of economic warfare by the Iranians to um, drive up the cost of us doing business in the Middle East.
2: Just a, just a, I, I totally agree. And, and just a note on the specifics of some of these systems. I don't know the name of the of, of the missile fired. Over the, although it is entirely possible that uh, they may have fired a short range system uh, towards uh, a maritime target. I am of the view that they fired a anti ship ballistic missile. Iran has several, at least four classes of anti ship ballistic missiles. All actually based, actually, on that original progenitor of that single stage. Solid propellant short range ballistic missile on that family, the Fateh 110 family. And Iran has these uh, anti ship missiles with a similar design that the Houthis, as you mentioned, started parading last September and this September in their annual uh, parade in Sana'a. And that is the Iranian, the Iranian ones are at least called the Khalid Jafars, the Hormuz 1, the Hormuz 2, and the Zulf Basir. And many of these have some kind of electro optical kind of targeting. Uh, The Iranians have tried to practice uh, over the years striking at, uh, you know, mock-ups of American carriers. Some of you guys may remember that. Uh, But they've also tried to strike moving targets. And in general, the Houthis, I think, are practicing with some of these systems on moving targets. And that may explain the 10 nautical mile distance uh, between where the missile fell and where the mason
0: was. Yeah, and that was really what surprised me with this attack, right? I mean, hitting a static target with a ballistic missile, yeah, it's doable. And we've there's a lot of experience out there doing that. But hitting a moving target definitely another level of, of um technology and expertise required to do that. Joe Benham, any parting thoughts before we uh before we wrap this up?
2: Joe, go ahead.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'm just saying I'm all set. Uh I think I'm, I'm... I'm wondering, just very quick, just because Bill just brought it up, because the the whole you know ten missing by ten nautical miles. I'm curious. I wonder if I mean, a part of me is like, I wonder if they were it it was it was they did it on purpose to be you know as a warning. You know, I I don't know. You know, I'm trying to think why would they miss? I mean, ten miles. Maybe ten miles is not a lot when it comes to this subject. You know, but um, I don't know it. I'm just trying to wrap my head around how, how they could miss by that much. And maybe it was a warning, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I don't know, just, just wanted to, you know, bring that up.
2: Yeah, it it, it, it certainly could be. I mean, even even the, the rate of the medium range ballistic missile and suicide drone fire from the Houthis against Israel, where again, we, we know they're going towards a lot. We know they're going towards a stationary, you know, largely civilian target there um whether they strike or not, it's a signal. And it's a signal, I think, of more to come. And this is this is, I think, the connecting the, the threading of all of these disparate kind of sets of attacks that we've talked about by the Axis resistance, whether it be from Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, the West Bank, Iran itself, and and now ending with the Houthis in Yemen. This is Iran saying, truce or no truce, ceasefire or no ceasefire, I am going to continue to improve the capabilities, the long-range site capabilities of this axis. I'm going to continue to gradually turn up the fire on Israel, America, and the coalition in this region, and increasingly use every single battlefield that I have a proxy as yet another testing ground for yet another capability. So again, there's this is, this is really a movie we're watching here. These are not snapshots of a conflict. This is a story of change over time. And, and we just sat down to the beginning.
0: Benham, Joe, thanks again for your insights. Look forward to having back on soon. Y'all have a great week. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and uh, leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.